0: Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you as we settle our hearts now and turn our focus onto you, your Holy Spirit, and your divinely inspired word. Lord, open our hearts. We thank you, Lord. And we know that if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. It's not going to happen. So we pray, Father, for a moving of your spirit that you would just descend upon this place, upon each one here, that you anoint the speaking, also the hearing, Father. That when we leave here, we could be just a little bit more like your son, Jesus. So that's our goal. That's our desire. We yield to the work that you want to do. And we pray that you would just go before every aspect of this service and our time together in fellowship afterwards. We want to glorify you in it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Busy week. Good week. We finished last week, John chapter 3. Yeah, I know. It was like three and a half months <laughs> to get three chapters but that's a good thing that just means there was lots of good meat in there for us uh, in John chapter 3 we saw at the at the outset uh Jesus goes in he cleanses the temple remember we talked about that and and he uh basically got rid of the hucksters in there, and uh, well, you know, I don't know if he got rid of them, but they were making big bucks. They were making, it was a huge business. They turned the things of God, the temple services into uh, simply uh, a business, and they were ripping the people off with their money changers, and ripping the people off with the animals, and all of that. Then we went on, and we looked at Jesus' time with Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus at night, probably because he just wanted an audience alone with him. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And uh, we looked at the profound things that Jesus had to say to Nicodemus, That, uh, looking at the the capstone, really, of God's word, the most important verse, John 3.16, where Jesus is there after he's talked about Moses with the serpent in the wilderness and how he likened that to he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up. And and, uh, talks about how for anyone who would just simply come to believe that they could live forever, And the challenge in that is, do we really believe that? Because you will act on what you believe. And if you believe that, your life will be different. You will live with a different set of rules. You'll live with a different set of goals. You will live with a different worldview. And so, not worldly view, but worldview. The way you look at life is different. The way we as believers look at life is radically different from the hopeless futility that you see in the world. And so we looked at that. We, We moved from there on. Last week, we finished up. By looking at uh, John the Baptist, he has sort of been woven into the text here, into the narrative in the Gospel of John. We saw a lot of him in chapter one. And then in chapter three, it says that Jesus, after he'd finished dealing with Nicodemus, he went down from Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's up in the mountains. He went down into the the, the plains to the east, along near the Jordan River, and he was baptizing. His men actually were baptizing. It says that uh, in chapter four here, that it was his men actually doing the baptizing, but Jesus was there. And the guys had come to John the Baptist remember. And they said, hey, you know, everybody's going to see him now. Hey, aren't you just, you know, like a little put off by that implied. And and John the Baptist said, no, I'm equivalent of the best man at the wedding. The the bride's not drawn to the best man. She's drawn to the groom. And this is how things ought to be. I need to decrease so that he can increase. And so as we get to chapter four now, we see that Jesus indeed is increasing. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. We know by this time, now somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4, John the Baptist is thrown into prison. And the reason we know that is in in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12, says that when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to Galilee. So prior to his departure to go up to the northern part of the country, which is the Galilee region, Jesus had heard that John was now in jail. There were great crowds beginning to come to Jesus. We saw that in chapter 3. And he was increasing in popularity. Now, he didn't want to have a confrontation with the religious leaders, the Jews at that time. And so seeing that they were starting to notice, it says here, that they were noticing that he had more disciples now than John did. And they were pretty put off by John because nobody baptized in those days unless you were baptizing Gentiles to become Jews. And he was doing this whole weird baptism in their eyes. It was weird. I mean, we see it and we understand it baptizing a people of repentance for the mission of sins so he could prepare a people that was ready to receive Messiah, the sent one, the holy one of God. And so now John the Baptist has decreased. He's in jail. Jesus is on his way to Galilee. Uh, it says that he, uh, he went to the northern part, but in verse four, it says he needed to go through Samaria. Now, why would he need to go through Samaria? I want to look at a map here. Let me, uh, I got a pointer Actually, remember to get this this time. All right. Jesus is down. This is Jerusalem down here where he has gone is over here. This is the Jordan River that runs from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. He's somewhere in this area. And then what he does is he says, you know, I need to go to, to Galilee, which is the northern area up here. But it says he needed to go through Samaria. So now, Where he's going to go in Samaria is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem to a place called Sychar. And let me give you a little bit of background here. Let's go ahead, go to the next map. I've zoomed up on it a little bit. This is an interesting place. This place is rich with biblical history. I mean, it's absolutely rich. This is the place where Abraham landed. Now, he didn't land, but I mean, this is the place where Abraham ended up. When God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, and he called him to go to this this place that he was promising to give to his descendants, Abraham moved to a place called Shechem. Sychar is right at ancient Shechem. And uh, there's a couple of mountains there. There's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. We'll look at those in a minute. But... At this place, this is where Abraham raised and tended his flocks. His son, his grandson, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, after him, they were in this area. They kind of ranged from Ai and Bethel to the south, up to Shechem, to the north here. Shechem was at a major intersection. Uh, you would go up the middle of the country. They called it the Ridge Route, back, or they do now. I don't know what they called it then, but was, there's was a road along the ridge of the mountains. Coming up from the Mediterranean Sea, very fertile ground to the west, very arid and dry to the east. I mean, that's why it was called desert and then after that wilderness, because it, there's nothing out there. It is rocks and dirt. And in the area of Shechem, it's in the desert. It's, it's, I, when I was there, I went there um, a few years ago on a study tour with a group of pastors. It was such a blessing. And when I was there, I went up on Mount Gerizim. and I'll show you some pictures that I took from Mount Gerizim because Jacob's well that we're gonna look at here still exists. So just to get a a point of reference, what happened was Jesus goes from Judea, he's gonna go to Galilee, it says that he needed to go through Samaria. Now what happened in those days, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, okay? And those of you that are Bible students, you know this, you've heard this before, but there was real hostility between these people. 722 years before uh, Christ, before the, the the birth of Jesus, where we may measure that break in time from B.C. to A.D. and all that, 722 years before, the Assyrians and their armies had invaded the northern ten tribes, the northern area of Israel. Was, there had been a, a bloodless civil war, and there was two sections. there's Judah and Jerusalem, and then there was the northern ten tribes. And so Israel was invaded by this, this invading army. They, they came, and they took, and they pulled a bunch of the people out. Saddam Hussein did this with Kuwait when he invaded Kuwait in 1990. uh, August 1st, I think it was 1990. Uh, And when he invaded Kuwait, he took a bunch of the Kuwaiti people out and then he put a bunch of Iraqi people in. This is a common thing that that invading forces would do. They would depopulate and then repopulate the land with foreigners. What the Assyrians had done is they had conquered most of the known world by the time they got to Israel. And so they took a bunch of the Israeli people out and they transplanted people from all over the empire into this northern section of the country. What they did, the reason they did that was to to cause them to be destabilized from the standpoint of being able to mount up uh, a revolt against the people that had invaded. As they established a new government and a new territory, they would be weakened by replacing the residents of the land with these foreign peoples. So we're told... Uh, and, and I'll get to it in a minute, but what had happened here uh, is, is the people had kind of brought in all of their false gods and all of their false worship and all of that. So when Jesus is going to go through Samaria, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they felt that Samaria was so defiled that they, if they got so much as a speck of dust on their sandal that they were ceremonially unclean, they would go down... <clears throat> they would travel down, if they wanted, if the, the religious leaders, if they wanted to go down from Jerusalem to go to Galilee, they would go down, they would cross the Jordan River, and they'd go up the backside, the wilderness of Perea. Uh, they would go in the backside and then cross back over on the north side of Samaria so they wouldn't have to be in Samaria. There was that much hostility between these two peoples. Because what had happened was, over the years, excuse me, they had gotten into this polluted version of Judaism. The Samaritans had, had, they had kept some of the rituals and some of the things in the law, but they had totally perverted. I'll get into that in a bit. But, so that's the scene. When Jesus says he needed to go to, through Samaria, it would have been a big deal for his guys because he's bringing 12 very nationalistic, very Jewish men with him when he goes. And they would have been put off. And there's some very interesting things that unfold as the story unfolds here before us. So going to verse 5, it says, So he came to a city in Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is also the place where Joseph's bones are buried, that Joshua took, he took Joseph's bones from Egypt, and he buried his bones here. Joseph's tomb is here. Uh, Verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Remember when we looked at Jewish days, 12 equal parts, from sun up to sundown, they would divide their, their days into 12 equal parts. So this, if it's the sixth hour, it means it's noon. It's the middle of the day. The sun would be at its highest point in the sky at that point of the day. So here Jesus says, it's the middle of the day. He's been, this is about 40 miles, as I mentioned, from Jerusalem. So this would be the third or fourth day of traveling, figuring 15 miles a day, roughly. Uh, and if he came from the Jordan Rift down below, it would have been further. Uh, so, you know, this is, it's a long journey, And he's tired, so he comes, he gets to this well in the middle of the day. This is totally the reason why he needed to go to Samaria was because he has an appointment. Remember, we read in the New Testament that Jesus says, I only do that which the Father shows me to do. And the Father had predestined, had designed this appointment with this woman far in advance of Jesus even showing up on the earth. This was something that was known to Jesus. It was revealed to him by the Father. And he, being obedient, perfectly obedient, went and took this route because on his way to Galilee, he had an appointment with this lady. So it, says, so it was about the sixth hour in verse seven. Uh, a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now what they did in those days, when they traveled, they would carry these portable water vessels. Usually it was an animal skin that they could lash uh, some uh, line to and lower it down, maybe put a rock in the middle of it, lower it down into the well, and they could draw the water out. Well, uh, we're told in verse 8 that Jesus' men had already gone to to the city to buy food. And so there's Jesus without anything to draw with, and this woman comes up to the well at noon, and he asks her for a drink. I want to take a minute. Let's take a few minutes here. I'm going to look at some photographs. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go, yeah. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 29. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess that you shall put a blessing on Mount Gerizim and a curse on Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim is going to figure a very large part in the story that unfolds with Jesus. And I want you to understand here in this photo, this is a modern day photograph um, the town of Neblas is up in here. Ancient Shechem is here. Jacob's well is here. And Sychar would be over here. Now, this is Mount Gerizim. And this is Mount Ebal. All right? Just so that, I just want you to have a point of reference. I'm not going to get too heavily into this. I want you to notice. You see this big building up here on top of the mountain? It's, I'm kind of drawing a circle around it with my frenzied hand here. All right. Go ahead and go to the next slide. This is that building. Okay, and now I went from a picture I got off the internet to a picture that I took. <laughs> so, uh, up on Mount Gerizim, there's—if you go back one uh, slide, if you could, yeah. You see, there's there's not much here, guys. There's a little bit of forest, a few trees, but it's mostly just rocks. Go ahead and go forward. So I turned around, and at my back was this building. Looking up at the top of the hill, now I'm standing here and I'm looking out over over ancient Shechem. Go ahead and go, please. All right, now it was, the sun was going down. This is Mount Gerizim at my back. And so I'm like frantically taking pictures going, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> and I did to the large degree. But right here, this is the ancient ruins of Shechem. This is where Abraham was and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all that, where they were tending their herds when they sent Joseph to go look for him and then he didn't find him there and they ended up selling him off to the, the guys and all. But so... Just to get a point of reference, is looking from Mount Gerizim, this would be where Shechem was. Sychar would have been up in here somewhere. And this is Jacob's Well, and it's a known place. The Catholic Church has enshrined it, of course. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm glad that they did because, you know, they're responsible for keeping and maintaining and restoring a great many of the antiquities in Israel. Um, Theologically, I don't have a lot to say about the Catholic Church. Uh, There's some pretty strange stuff. But because of their influence, go ahead and go to the next slide. All right, this is kind of a close-up. You can't see it real well on the screen, but this is the, the, the ancient part of the city. The ruins have been preserved here for Shechem. Go ahead and go to the next one. And this is what... Jacob's well looks like today. They built this big building over it, and you can go in this big, huge, elaborate building, and there's this simple little rock well inside. It's, it's kind of an interesting twist on things. But it's this whole complex in here, and Jacob's well, again, it's a known place. So I'm looking down, when I'm in Israel, I'm looking down on, on, on Jacob's well, and I'm going... Wow, that's where the woman at the well was. That's, I mean, that's really awesome. There's like a real place. And I I mean, I knew that I believed that it was, but just being there, guys, it was like I've told people before that the Bible went from being kind of two dimensional and in black and white to three dimensional and living color, uh, when I studied there. And so it was just a blessing to be able to go. Go ahead and go forward, please. All right. So. Going back to verse uh, uh, 7, we'll just pick it up in 7, we don't have to go all the way back to 5. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, and catch this, because this hostility between them comes out right away. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me a Samaritan woman. And I would imagine that her tone was probably something like that. For Jews, and John inserts here, for Gentile readers, I mean, if you were Jewish, you read this, you'd understand, yeah, well, we know why she's kind of on it already. But for Gentile readers, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the woman there, I mean, Jesus comes up, here's this guy, she doesn't know anything about him. She could see that he's Jewish and and when he speaks to her, she says, "Give me a drink of water." And it sounded kind of harsh, but it, he wasn't. He was being respectful. But the point is that she's shocked, and she's indignant with him. She she's immediately categorizes the Jews as a group, so her prejudices come out right off. Um, it's interesting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait. <laughs> it's, I was going to rabbit trail, and I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to hold back. Um, Interesting, the Jews are the ones who initially hated the Samaritans. I'll summarize. I'm still going to rabbit trail. Uh, (laughs) I just had this whole argument with myself. You guys got to watch. But the Jews were the ones who initially hated, they loathed the Samaritans. When they came back from captivity... And they saw that these people had reduced the things of God. I mean, they had perverted everything about Judaism. They had, it up until about 129 years before Jesus came, they had a temple on Mount Gerizim that was the Samaritan temple. And a, and a Jewish general was so incensed that these people would be into this garbage worship that he went and destroyed the temple. And the hostility, I mean, this is 700 years of prejudice and hostility and of, of just uh, between these people, they really couldn't stand each other. I mean, this was major prejudice going on here. And there's an interesting thing that happens is that when a people are oppressed and a people are hated, very often those people will adopt the same attitude towards their oppressors. So this hatred went both directions, even though it initiated with the Jews, it went both ways uh, and you see that with different groups today. I mean, where people, there's, there's, there's this loathing that goes on and people will adopt the same loathing towards those that loathe them. And so you end up with this, just this clash. And the clash is very evident when she comes at him and she says, you're a Jew. What are you doing with me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Interesting, when Jesus asks her for a drink, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, he has no prejudice. None. He's actually talking to her. Now, he was a Jew. He knew she was a Samaritan woman. He went there to see her. That's number one. Number two, she was a woman. And in that culture, you just don't go walking up and start engaging women. And he just goes right past all of it. The same thing as he, that he did when he went right from Judea into Samaria. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care about the age-old enmity, the hostility between these peoples. He went to speak to her because she is a living, breathing human being. That was the only qualifier that you had to have and still do have to have to have interaction with Jesus. All of the lines are erased with him. Every one of them. And you notice in the Gospels when you see Jesus dealing with people, there are no lines. We put lines down. Somebody said something not long ago about homeless people. I thought, well, that's interesting. You ever thought about Jesus was homeless? He was a homeless man. He was an itinerant rabbi. He was an itinerant preacher. He just went from city to city. He didn't have any place to lay his head. So what does that do to your thoughts about the homeless population? Kind of makes you think. So it's interesting. Like I said, there's 700 years of bigotry and hatred going on here, and Jesus is aware of this whole thing, and he he marches right in. In 2 Corinthians, I mentioned this last week, uh, mainly because I get ahead of myself sometimes. I study ahead. But I, I mentioned being ambassadors for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We see the me- the, the ministry, as I mentioned last week, the ministry of reconciliation here. And he said, when he says you're an ambassador... You look at the qualifications of an ambassador. And yes, I will repeat myself because it's very, very important that we as Christians understand this. These are critical issues. If we are to be a light unto the world, we have to have this thinking down, gang. If we don't, then we duplicate Israel's mistake. They were to be a light unto the nations. They became arrogant and puffed up and thinking that their thing was the only thing and everybody else was lower. They did exactly what Jesus is not doing here. And the reason why we're called ambassadors is because an ambassador is somebody, he has his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own prejudices, his own way of doing things, his, the, what I would do if I was president, all of that, like we do. But in order to be an ambassador, you have to put all of that stuff away. And you have one mission, that is to carry out the wishes of the, the government, or in this case, the king and the kingdom, is to carry out the demands of what that country or that kingdom has designated you as an ambassador for. You have one thing to do, and that's to, to simply represent the king, to represent Christ, to represent him. That's what Paul says here when he says, it's as though God was pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation. We have been commanded to get past our own ideas of how things ought to be or what people are the ones that we should be reaching, what people that shouldn't be, and all of that junk that we throw in there. I mean, we pile it on sometimes because we have these strong opinions. We have, well, I heard this person. You know, and you get this whole deal going. And he says, just stop all the chatter. Just get real with me and know that you have been called, not some are called, but you have been called to the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador for Christ. That is a very serious commission and it's something that we need to take to heart, gang. It truly is because our effectiveness as a witness for him will be impaired if we bring our own things in and we work through that as a lens rather than through his Holy Spirit as a lens to reach people. Interesting, the woman's here at the well at noon. One of the charges that women had in that culture was to do the chores. And one of the chores was getting water. Some of you women are giggling. (laughs) One of the things that women in our culture... No, I'm I'm not going to go there. (laughs) You guys will start throwing rotten fruit at me. (laughs) I am so tempted, but... (laughs) <laughs> go ahead, let her rip, yeah. Yeah, he used to be the pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel Newber. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that women did was the chores, and one of the chores they had, they didn't have running water, they went to the well. Now, women would go and get water, either first thing in the morning or late in the day. When it was cool. Remember, this is a warm time of year. Passover is gone. Remember, Jesus was at the temple at Passover. Then he went down and had the thing with Nicodemus. And then he went down and was baptizing and all that. We don't know how far Passover was, but this was a hot, it was getting into a very warm time of year. And this is, as you can see by the photos, it's a pretty arid place. Rocks and lizards, man. I mean, it, it would have been hot. It would have been a warm journey for him. So he's tired. He's looking forward to a drink. And he gets to the well at noon And this woman walks up and they're the only two people there at the well. Why? Jesus knew her life. And we'll see it revealed when he he lays her life open here as we go along. But he knew her life and he knew the shame that she had. He knew that she was not just a Samaritan woman who would be kind of in their pecking order, kind of at the bottom, but she was the bottom of the bottom because she was a woman who'd been married for five times and was now living with a guy in immorality. And think about it. What would, what would it have been like for her to go to the well first thing in the morning when all the other ladies were there? You think maybe she got tired of all the whispering, of the chiding, of, of the underhanded remarks that would come from the other ladies? I think perhaps the only way she could get any peace of mind with her broken life be to go when nobody else is around. And this day she walks up on the well and there's this man from the Jews that's sitting there. And Jesus answered in verse 10 and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, given you living water. Now in those days, living water might have meant spring water. It would have meant flowing water for sure. Remember we talked about that with the mikvahs and the living water and all that. But what Jesus is getting at here, she's saying, you know, physical water and he goes right into the spiritual. And he says, no, no, no. If you, if you knew what was taking place here, you would understand that I have the ability to satisfy you in a way that physical water never would. He's saying, You hesitate to give me water. And she's because she's being sarcastic with him and she pushes on him. But he, I love the fact he doesn't lower himself to her, but he deals with her in grace. Verse 11 the woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? She attempts now to provoke him. Okay. She's still not dealing. She's still not dealing. She's, She's put off by this guy. She doesn't wanna, She probably didn't want to have a conversation with him to begin with. She goes at noon for a reason. There's nobody around, and now this guy's bugging her, and she's being engaged by a Jew and of all people. She's not having a good day here. She's essentially saying, you certainly are presumptuous for the one who came here with nothing to draw with. I mean, she's going, hey, you know, it'd be one thing if you had a, a bucket, but you don't even have a bucket, Come on, you're asking me for water. Now you're telling me this stuff. Are you really, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Are you really, come on? You know, and so she's taking him on here. He still doesn't buy into her stuff. He doesn't react to her. He he responds in grace. I love this about him. In this this passage, it's so good. You can see the grace of God all over the place. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What Jesus is saying here is Woman, yeah, you drink this water, you're going to need more because we get thirsty again. But let me tell you about the water that I have to give you water for your thirsty soul. And. When I give you this water, you will never thirst. As a matter of fact, it'll have the reverse effect. Not only will you have your thirst satisfied, your desire for fulfillment in this life, but you'll actually start manufacturing water and it'll gush forth from you. And we see that by the end of this passage, it is gushing forth from her because this unlikely convert, a Samaritan woman, the lowest of the low in their minds would actually be the one who is responsible for reaching her whole city for Christ. Is that amazing to you? I mean, that is not lost on me, folks. It is amazing to me that she is probably the least likely candidate for evangelism school. I mean, think about it. This woman, I mean, in our vernacular, we would probably call her a floozy. All right, go ahead and laugh. But it's true. I mean, I mean, people would look and go, oh, I don't know about her. She'd been around the block a few times, you know, and all of that. And Jesus just marches right in and he begins to engage her in dignity and in grace and in respect. And now she's beginning to break because he's explaining to her, this is not any regular water that I'm offering you. Is offering her satisfaction, not from the outside, but satisfaction from within. Because it would work its way out. That's the living water. That's what happens with us. The living water that Jesus gives us. I mean, think about it. If you are a Christian and you start, I love having fellowship with people. I love, I crave fellowship with people because there's that that thing. I mean, you know what that thing is that I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, you do. Good, I don't have to explain it. We can go home. No, seriously, there's that thing inside of us. We crave fellowship with others, with other Christians, because it's his spirit bearing witness. And we go into that place, and it's like pretty soon, it's like it's midnight, and I thought you just got here. And it's like the evening's gone because we have just been engaged. That's the living water having its effect. it's, It's when I would take teams to Mexico, and I would watch these teenage kids. Whose lives were messed up, who I mean they were so spoiled they thought that you know a trial was bad cable reception in their bedroom. I mean, you know what I mean and and by the time they came back i would I mean they would be weeping because and some i mean some were affected in different ways, but I would see the transforming power of the gospel in these kids life because they would not only see how most of the world lives. But God would touch them in such a deep way and I would watch this living water take hold in their life and pretty soon by the time they get back and we would have a sharing Sunday, a Sunday where all these kids would, they would show pictures and the kids would be able to get up and share. And I would see this kid that had never shared with anybody before get up and just be on fire for Jesus. Living water. Living water and see lives transformed. This is the heart of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't get any deeper than this. I does not get any better than this. You see how well educated she is. She's got, boy, oh boy, letters after, no, she didn't have any letters after her name other than a few that probably people didn't want to repeat. But he's offering her true fulfillment. He knows all about her even before he engages her. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. Now, notice she starts out calling him a Jew and now she's calling him Sir. She's softening. She doesn't get it yet. She, she doesn't fully understand. But you can tell by this interaction, just by her being there and by her now beginning to engage Jesus that she's a seeker. She's seeking. And he's, hitting, he's pressing some buttons with her because he's telling her, look, I can give you spiritual water. I can give you this water that will bring you satisfaction and fulfillment on such a deep level that you've never experienced it in your entire life. Think about it, guys. We know from the end, from the beginning, we know that this is a woman that's been married five times, shacking up with the guy she's with now. She has been, you know, the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. She's been this woman who has sought satisfaction through the, the, the arm of the flesh. Even though she's a Samaritan woman, she doesn't really care about God. All she cares about is finding a place where she fits. And every time she would find a place where she fit, because she was doing it according to man's rules, she found out she didn't fit. And so she would cycle through another relationship. Who knows how many relationships she had between marriages? But the point is is that Jesus is reaching the very deepest part of who she is, and he's appealing to something deep inside of her that he appeals to the same thing in us. Oh well we you know and I've mentioned before, when I raised my kids, I'd say, you know what? We're all broken. You gotta get over making judgments about people because we're all broken. Some of us are a little more sophisticated than others, and we know how to hide it, don't we? Oh, your faces give you away. <laughs> and I would tell my kids, you know what? Some of us are not all that sophisticated and we wear our brokenness on the outside. Don't you dare size people up on that basis because you will be making a grievous error. You're, just, you're, you're letting off the hook the ones that haven't shown you their brokenness. Great, great lesson for us. Jesus is telling this woman, Life has not quenched your thirst. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. And think about it. Was she a terrible sinner? We know by the story, yes, she was. But she chose to quench it with men and with relationships, with sex. Has thing, have things changed that much in 2,000 years? Look around. Is there any greater commission that we could have than this ministry of reconciliation that the Lord is laying out here? People are hopelessly despairing out there. The suicide rate is sky high. People are being enslaved to drugs. I mean, some of these drugs, you do them once and you're done. You can't live without them. You think you can't? I mean, the bondage that you see out there, and then the hostility that you see, the people that are hostile towards the gospel. I mean, why would something so beautiful, I mean, you and I know the gospel as being a beautiful thing, something that God has ordained to enrich our lives, to elevate us, to get us to not live in the miry clay, as the psalmist says, but to, to set our feet upon the rock. The design of the gospel, the design of the plan of God is so beautiful. Why else would the world be so hostile against it? It's because it's true. It's because Jesus has the words of life. It's because the gospel brings us the words of hope. When my daughter, before my daughter went to heaven, she spent months in an intensive care unit and I figured, you know, I don't care if I go bankrupt, I'm not leaving, and I didn't. My son was very gracious, had just gotten out of college, was getting ready for the big job and all that, and he just simply sat down at my desk and started calling me. And I took a year off while my daughter was very sick. One of the things I learned, guys, I got to where I could tell within about five minutes when a family came in, where they were at spiritually. I'll never forget a woman saying, Please, sir, please, I, I, I know because I was sharing with people in, in the ICU. It was a great, great mission field. I mean, it was sort of an unlikely one. I didn't plan on it, but it was, it was just a great time to share hope. And she had me go pray for her husband who had had open-heart surgery and it had gone wrong, they had to open his chest back up. There's plastic film over his chest, and I'm in there laying hands and praying for this guy. It was just a powerful time. But I could tell the people that were without hope very quickly, the level of despair would be off the charts. The people that had hope, the people that knew Christ were easily spottable. I could easily tell because they would be the ones saying, come on, and I would see people huddled in the corner praying or I would see people saying, you know, whether he makes it or not, I just know where he's going to be, you know, or Aunt Matilda or whatever. But I mean, this went on for months and I it was, a, it was sort of an ethereal thing for me because it was, you know, my daughter was in very, big trouble and, and all, and so I was very concerned there, but the point is, is that it was just so easy to see sort of that microcosm of an ICU waiting room and to see the level of hope or the level of despair that people had, and it was commensurate with what they believed. That's why this stuff's so important. Think about this lady. What would her dreams have been like you know, we all have—I call it our mental photo album. I remember being a little kid, and I was talking to my brother. My brother was visiting uh, last week, and it, we had a great time. We were talking about when we were young, about what our hopes were, and then then our stepfather showed up. Oh, oh boy, that was a joke. But uh, and without going down that road, it was just uh, the point is, is that is that we all had this little photo album of how our our life would be, and you know, we would you know grow up and have 3.2 children, drive a station wagon, a little white house with a picket fence. I mean, the whole thing. Tell me honestly, has life fit your pictures? Has it really? We'll talk afterwards if you said yes. What would this woman's pictures have been? Do you think it would have been projecting out to the age that she is when she's here at the well with Jesus? I will have been married five times. My life would have been a train wreck. Well, there weren't any trains, but it would have been a train wreck had there been trains. (laughs) But my life would have been a wreck. And this guy comes up and he starts offering me living water. And my life is just this empty black hole. Jesus says to her in verse 16, I'm going to have to step on it here to finish. (laughs) Go and call your husband and come here. This seems kind of cruel at first, but he's going to get to something here and i want to I'll wait to bring it out but again what would have gone through her mind when she heard the word husband maybe that was the only thing she heard it was like oh not again oh, i thought maybe i could what do you mean go call your husband the last thing she wants to do is to talk about her personal life with this guy because it was a wreck the guy she was with wouldn't even marry her well I'll let you live with me, but I'm not going to marry you. You have a reputation, would be implied. I'll let you do my housekeeping, go to the well and get water, bring me sexual gratification, but I'm not going to marry you. No, 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 no. You're that kind of woman. How would she have felt inside? Think about it. How would she have felt? And now here this guy, this Jew that she just met, is promising her this weird water. Says, Go. Get your husband. Come here. The shortest thing in their whole dialogue is what happens next. In verse 17, she answers, says, I have no husband. That's it. We're not going to go there. That's what's implied. And she hopes that he doesn't prod any further. Her heart must have been racing at this point, thinking to herself that she can't go anywhere where her past doesn't haunt her. And Jesus said, you have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. He's saying, I know everything about you. You're a Samaritan. You're a woman. You're a sexually immoral woman. And the Father has sent me to seek you out. Amazing. 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 What Jesus is saying in this is I know all about you and I came anyway. There are things in probably all of our lives that we don't share with anyone. Just being honest. Did you know that Jesus knows all about that thing? And he came anyway. He loves you in spite of that. He loves you, including that. He never endorses sin. But like the woman caught in adultery, and we'll get to that. He says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. By the way, go and leave leave your sinful lifestyle. Piercing. That's why he exposes her sin, gang. He doesn't just expose her sin so he can point his finger at her and say, Ha, see? I knew it. I knew it. You're a sinner. (laughs) Ha, ha. He knew that. He knows that with us. But he exposes her sin because think about it. If he didn't do that, there would always be this niggling just this doubt that would be in the back of her mind as she went forward in her life after this exchange and after the next couple of days, because he'd be there for a while, there would always be this doubt, if, but he didn't really know all about who I was. So therefore, maybe I'm not as forgiven as I'd like to think. No, he knew all about her and he made sure that she knew he knew all about her because it was important to him. He was being kind when he exposed her husband thing. He knew that he would address that on the front end so that there would be no doubt going forward that she had been fully, fully forgiven. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now she goes from you're a Jew to sir to wow, you're a prophet. (laughs) He's coming up in her estimation. She's seeing things about this guy now. How would he know is what she's thinking. And then in verse twenty, I love this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place where one ought to go to worship. What on earth does that have to do with anything that they're talking about? I've shared the Lord with people before, and this is this is exactly what she's doing. She's going. So, where do you go to church? <laughs> I don't want to talk about my husband's. <laughs> uh, I knew a guy that was a prison guard. Uh, I used to go to a men's group on Friday mornings and uh, this guy, he, he, he made a really keen observation one day. He said, you know, I share Christ with a lot of inmates all the time. I mean, you know, I get, I, I build a relationship and he would, he'd build relationships with these guys and he was a great guy. And, um, and he said, I, I, I learned something when I was sharing Christ that very often people would do what I call deflect. They wouldn't get up in my face, hey, I don't want to, you know, and get this whole deal going, get their back up. But they would simply deflect. So, where do you go to church? So, yeah, I went to uh, camp as a kid. So, and they would do this little, just this little, just kind of, just get the message to where it just goes off to the side. They don't have to get it totally in the toilet. They just get it deflected a little bit, and they don't have to deal. She's deflecting here, believe me. Oh, our father's, and she's probably motioning up to Mount Gerizim, because our father's worshipped on this mountain. So... (laughs) Um, he was way too close to home at this point. He's broken through all of her barriers, and she is essentially, her soul is buried before this guy. And he says to her in verse 21 Women, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We know what we worship. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying, Lady, it doesn't matter where you worship. We talked about this. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? I, I quoted this verse. Because Jesus says the hour is coming and now is. when It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about the temple. Here Jesus says he is the first human being that is the temple of God. She's motioning up to the mountain. He's going, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter where. It matters Who? And it matters how. The Father is who we worship. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. You're not going to find satisfaction in these fleshly, carnal, worldly things. You'll find satisfaction in the water that I'm giving you and the result of your life, the response of your heart will be worship guaranteed. Guaranteed. When you realize that I came anyway and I know all about you, and you realize what the power of forgiveness has in your life to draw you into a whole new existence, you'll worship. It's the only thing we can do. I mean, folks, I could go on and I could just totally rabbit trail on worship right now because it is the only response that's appropriate. And it is the response of our hearts. I had a guy one time say, well, you know, how come we don't play those old hymns anymore? And I just don't like all this modern music. And, you know, he was kind of going on a rant and, and we ended up being very close friends. It was, I watched the Holy Spirit just get a hold of this guy. And I said, Jim, when we worship, we're not doing it for you. And he was like thunderstruck. I was like, wah, wah, ah, ah. I said, we're doing it for him. So if you've got a problem with the worship, your issue's not with me. And, I, and he literally started to, uh, uh, he was speechless. And he just simply, very softly said, how come nobody ever told me that before? And I said, brother, you've not been taught. You've never been taught God's word. We don't do it. We don't do worship. This isn't a sing-along. It's not, oh, I like that song and I don't like that song. I was in a church where we didn't have a worship leader for a couple of years and the pastor, because he was so committed, drug his organ down to the church that rolled on one of those reels and we did oom pa pa worship for two years. And, and it was from an earthly sense. Oh, it left a lot to be desired. And I'll tell you what, the Lord dealt with my heart about worship during that time and I don't mean a little bit. I was under such conviction because I just can't stand that organ. And he dealt with my heart. Why are you here? This worship time is not for you; it's for me. Am I worthy of your praise? Whether or not you like the instrument, oh, I gotta stop because I, got, I got I gotta go. <laughs> He's seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's saying, "I'm here." I needed to come to Samaria because the Father is seeking you. Remember, in their eyes, the bottom of the bottom, this is rejected people, this rejected woman in a rejected society, he's saying, let me show you the power of God unto salvation. I didn't go up. And, you know, if he was baptizing near the Jordan, he had to actually climb back up into the mountains to go up to Samaria before he went to Galilee. If he was down by the Jordan, all he would have had to do is hop across the river, go up, and then go in. But he didn't do that. Because he had an appointment with this woman. Think back in your life. He's had an appointment with you. Blow the dust off of that gang. If you especially have been Christian for a while, for a long time maybe. I've been a Christian for I don't know, 35 years. And there are times where I just, I'll just, i just hit my knees and I'll say, Lord, just forgive me for being complacent about the things of your kingdom and for being complacent about you. It's really easy to get that way. Take it from a pastor who knows. Serious. You know, there's it's just a place where we want to stay fresh and vibrant and alive with the Lord and to allow him, give him permission to work in my heart in a fresh and vibrant and alive way. This woman would never be the same. Verse 25, she says, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, if your Bible has he in italics, you'll see there that what Jesus is doing, the he is added for translation what he's doing he's using the covenant name of Yahweh here he says I who speak to you am from Exodus chapter 3 he's basically telling this woman you're talking to God and what would that have done I mean I don't know what shape her eyes were but they were probably as big as saucers at this point really yeah really I had planned on going further but we're going to stop there I have a video that, if we could take down the, the room lights. Matt, could you grab the room lights there? <clears throat> Let me set this up before we play it. Uh, and these lights, too, um, if you would. Thanks. I'll just talk in the dark for a minute. This is a video that I came across. This is, it's actually got a basis in John chapter 4, in this, this passage we've been studying. But it's also, you know, our servants' meeting is coming up next week. And I want to encourage you guys, this really spoke to my heart. It's a great, a very well-made video. It's about a woman who gets called of God when she's 70. And this is 20 years later. She's 90 now. And and I just want to have you take a look at this woman's testimony of the power of God uh, to work through a simple person who just simply loves the Lord. Let's watch.
1: God always does something new and unexpected that we can't even dream or think about hardly. My story begins back in the year of 1995 here in Quincy, Illinois. I had been down to the Salvation Army and after I left there, uh, right across the street is our Adams County Jail. And as I was driving by, I looked up at of the screens and the bars on the windows and thought, there are women in those jails right now. Somehow my heart was sort of softened and saddened by the thought of the women up there. And all at once it was like the Lord spoke very clearly to me in my heart and said, you've never been to the jail. I said, no, Lord, I haven't. Then I began to try to justify myself, and I thought, well, Lord, I've helped those who were hungry. I've taken a bowl of soup to the neighbor. And when someone was thirsty, when the garbage man came by in the summertime, uh, we often offered them a drink of cool water. And when somebody was sick, um, I helped take care of my grandmother during my high school days. And I guess I sort of thought I justified myself before God. And then just as clearly the same voice spoke to my heart and said, you have never been to the jail. And I slouched down my seat a little and responded more seriously this time. No, Lord, I haven't. Then I remembered in our trunk, my husband and I had some Bibles that we were using to give to people. And so I went out and got the Bibles and brought them in and left, and went on my way home and I thought, done my little thing. I'd been to the jail. But the Lord wouldn't let me go. And this kept coming to my mind again and again that I needed to go in the jail to the women. And then I even began arguing with the Lord, which isn't too smart a thing to do. (laughs) And I said, Lord, you know I'm getting older. So he didn't know that. And then almost immediately this message came to my heart as well i just want you to start this work i will give you plenty of women and people to help you before long we had a team of 12 women ready to go to the jail and two of us went every saturday We sat out in a walkway in front of the cells on milk gardens, turned upside down, and began to minister to the women. And I think there were two things that we didn't expect, at least that I didn't. I didn't know I could look into a woman's eyes that I had never seen and find out that I loved her. And it wasn't my love, it was Jesus' love flowing through us. And then the second thing that shouldn't have surprised me was that Because we were in the jails, we weren't the first ones to visit there. God was already there, waiting for us to come and bring his message of grace and mercy and love to those women. The big thing that we found that they were dealing with was that they were no good. Some of them grew up in bad homes, some of them grew up in good homes, but they did not know Jesus. Some of them didn't know even how to turn to him. But through God's Word and His Holy Spirit, we've seen lives changed. And we know that that's what can happen for any woman or any man in any circumstance. As time went by, though, we knew that there were women hurting and that they couldn't make it when they got out. And you know, all of us want a place to lay our heads at night and a place to call home and a place where we can feel safe and secure. And so we began to pray about a house. And so after many years of searching, God in his miraculous way sent us funds that we were able to purchase a house and we actually found the house just right down the street not very far from the jail just a few blocks away and we just are thankful that we have a home that we call the well house and it goes with the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus met the woman at the well and she came there for water and Jesus said to her I will give you the living water and this changed that woman's life And she said, as she left there to go out into her community, come, come and see a man. And he told me everything he knew about me. Come and see, is he not the Christ? And that's what we're saying with our home, with the women that are there. Come and see, is this not the Christ?
0: Wonderful message. We talk about the reason why we come here. As we want to learn God's word. We want to be in a place where we apply his word to our lives. When I, I had seen this video a a month or two ago and then I thought, Lord, I just, I'd like to bring something out for the body. My burden is is that we would just activate in ways that perhaps we never have as a church. I would like to, to inspire, not me, but you, your Holy Spirit, to inspire people. This woman could have blown it off that day when she drove down the road and the Lord burdened her heart. And here she is 20 years later with this thriving ministry because God wanted to use her, a simple woman. At 90 years old, I have a good friend who, and Stacey and I prayed about joining them. They they have a, a mission uh, deal in Eastern Africa, in the nation of Malawi. And Stacey and I spent a day and prayed with this couple. And he was the associate pastor at a Calvary Chapel down in Monterey Bay for years. And he and I got to know each other through conferences and stuff. And went to his house and, you know, and we became good friends and, he said, John, you know, uh, the the senior pastor had left and I was the interim pastor at this church and my wife was just burdened. And, and she said, I just, I, th- I think we need to do something. She founded a ministry called Ruth's Shawl and she was reaching out to the women who were left from the AIDS epidemic in Africa and the, and the orphans and all that. Uh, Widows and orphans out of James. And uh, she said, I think God's calling us to Africa. She said this to her husband and he said, I don't know, I mean, this is, I'm busy, <laughs> I have a lot to do. And he, he resisted her, and he's very transparent and open about it, and he just said, no, I just, I couldn't see it, I, and she's like, no. And uh, he said, she kept bugging him about it, and, you know, just not in his face, but just, you really think that's what God wants us to do, and I I don't think so. I've got this church to run, it's a big church, and, you know, we've got a lot going on, and, you know, the building, and the staff, and the whole deal... And one day he had a brainstorm. This, this was good. He said, I know, I will get Nora off my back. Her name's Nora, Stephen Nora. I'll get Nora off my back, essentially. I'm going to take this to the board and I'm going to present it to the board. The board, of course, is going to say, we need you as our pastor. And we got to keep going and na, 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 na. So he calls a board meeting. He presents this whole vision that his wife has and God touched every board member's heart. And they said, we will support you, go. <laughs> and he was like, really? <laughs> so at 70 years old, he was called not to just go join a mission deal, but to start a pioneering, what it means by pioneering mission work, is a fresh work in Malawi. And it is a thriving ministry where they had these this international ministry that brings water, regular water, contact them and say, we're taking physical water into these tribes, would you give living water with us? And they were like, that's why we're here. And I mean, it's just an amazing story of how God would just take the simple obedience of a simple person that simply wants to serve the Lord. I'm not saying he's calling us to jail ministry or to Africa or anything else. I'm just saying that it starts with a spark. It starts with him just simply speaking to a person's heart And saying, you know, there are things I could do through you. Number one, are you willing? And number two, are you available? That's all it takes. He equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. You don't have to be specifically equipped. Kind of taking a springboard on next week's servants meeting. But that's my heart as your pastor. Is that we would simply be people that pray. And say, Lord, what about me? And if you're fulfilling a ministry right now, this isn't meant to be in the least head trippy or weird. So don't get that. You know, I, I, will, I refuse to try to hustle people to do God's work through the arm of the flesh. This is about God calling, but it's also about hearing his call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this wonderful account of this woman in Samaria that uh, so many of us know this account well. And perhaps it's been a time of, as I mentioned, blowing the dust off of these things and taking a fresh look at what it is to simply know that your people are called and commissioned by you for divine appointments such as this. And just what a wonderful thing it is to see this divine appointment carried out in your word as an example to us, that with men, things are impossible. With you, all things are possible. We thank you, Lord, that you are risen and living active in the daily affairs of our lives. I pray you would open our hearts, Lord, that as a result of the fellowship we have with you, that we could be useful servants to you. So thank you, God. Thank you for this morning, thank you for each one here, and pray, Father, you'd go before the rest of our day. We pray your blessing on this time of fellowship in the potluck and ask Lord that you'd be glorified in all of it. We love you, we praise you in Jesus name. And all God's people said, "Amen. Amen. We could have some guys help set up tables. That'd be great. Um, and uh, let's eat. <laughs>